Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers so that we can accelerate the pace of discoveries by participating in clinical trials. There's a lot we can do to help researchers reach their targets, and it's something we can do even when we don't feel good or are in treatment. I encourage you to sign up for our Mpatient Minute newsletter where we post our upcoming show and past interview in a weekly email. You can do this on our homepage, www.mpatient.org. You can find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages on the homepage as well. We are uncovering the very latest in myeloma research with the best doctors in the world, so we encourage you to share what you're learning with your myeloma friends. Today we have an interview with Dr. Rafael Fonseca, who is a myeloma cytogenetics and genetics expert at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale. Hello. Hi, Dr. Fonseca. Hello, yes, this is him. Hi, this is Jenny Alstrom. You are live on the Mpatient Myeloma Radio Show. I'm well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be in your show. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us today. I would like to give everyone a little bit of background about you before we start, if that's okay. Perfect, yes. Okay, Dr. Rafael Fonseca is a professor of medicine and a consultant in the Division of Hematology Oncology at the Mayo Clinic, Arizona, and is also a Getz Family Professor of Cancer. He earned, he earned his MD degree at the Universidad Anahuac, Mexico, completed his residency at the University of Miami, and his fellowship in hematology and medical oncology at the Mayo Graduate School of Medicine in Rochester. He is a clinical investigator of the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Fund. He has received numerous awards, including the Young Investigator Award in Hematology from Celgene and the Damon Runyon Walter Winchell Clinical Investigator Award. He is a member of ASH, ASCO, and the American Association for Cancer Research and the International Myeloma Society. He is part of several clinical trial cooperative groups and is a founding member of the MMRC, the research consortium of the MMRF. He reviews grants and is part of the SPORE panel. He also reviews for medical publications and has authored over 150 articles. Um, in his lab, Dr. Fonseca leads a team with a focus on the cytogenetic nature of the clonal cells of plasma cell diseases, including multiple myeloma. So, Dr. Fonseca, we are so delighted to speak to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be in the program. Well, would you like to kind of give a broad overview of your research to begin, and then we can sort of begin with more specific questions? Sure, of course. You know, I um, well, again, thank you for the opportunity. I've been working in myeloma now for the past uh, 16, 17 years. And um, in both uh, my clinical translational activities as well as the lab, uh, we have been focused on the idea that the understanding of myeloma cells, and very specifically uh, the understanding of the genetic markers associated with myeloma biology, uh, we can better care for uh, our patients. And there's multiple goals uh, with this. One is, you know, can we find additional targets? Can we uh, use some of that information to actually improve existing treatments? And also, can we establish uh, various prognostic categories for the disease? Uh, we have been very fortunate that alongside with this efforts, uh, myeloma over the last 10 years has seen a dramatic and almost would call exponential expansion in the number of treatments and options that are available for patients. So, you know, we have had to adapt rapidly over the years to try to understand what we knew, how does that relate to what we currently know, and how does that relate to the new drugs that are available in the field. So that's kind of in a nutshell what we have done. My my, my lab, I would say, it's uh, 
um, primarily interested in doing things that have clinical value, that have some some applicability. And that is not to say that you know other other um, avenues of research are not important, but in mine, it's sort of that very quick translational approach to see what we can learn that we can bring to the bedside. Okay, and very practical. Very practical, correct. So I know you have research in the area of MGUS, and you have been studying how MGUS progresses to myeloma. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, I, I, I should speak about my pedigree because I'm only interested and fortunate to work in that area because of having worked with people like Dr. Bob Kyle and uh, with my colleague as well, Vincent Rashkumar up in Rochester. Um, and that's a team that has historically defined the, the natural history and the, the clinical aspects of MGOS. And we've tagged along trying to understand, you know, can we again put a layer of some um, translational research into understanding MGOS? I think, you know, through, through their observations, we know a lot more about MGOS than, than we actually uh, uh, previously knew. So, you know, for instance, a couple of seminal observations have been that we know that that um, all myeloma patients have gone through an MGOS stage, pretty much. Uh, this is work done both uh, in our center as well as work done in collaboration with other institutions where I think one of, one of the most notable examples is that um, uh, a repository associated with Army recruits uh, where, where uh, you know, individuals were getting bloods collected every year um, it turns out it became a large repository, um, and uh, Dr. Brendan White led some of this efforts. And uh, over over time, they learned that 60 individuals in that cohort developed myeloma, and, um, and, and because of this previous collection, we had the samples. So, so the samples were tested, and people found out that all myeloma patients essentially, you know, have uh, had an MGUS before they were they were diagnosed. Now. Uh, that was a fundamental observation. Another work done by by some of the group from statistics in Rochester has shed light on, well, you know, we we know that MGUS is present, but for how long? And uh, using some some models that they have developed uh, for the assessment of other diseases like um, HIV, they were able to find that patients have had MGUS for many years. And now this is this is sort of central to the core of what we're studying because I had done work and my team has done work finding out that MGOS cells uh, harbor the same genetic abnormalities as myeloma has. Hmm. And, and with that knowledge, and also with the knowledge that those genetic aberrations are there, uh, we know that they are not sufficient to cause the, the, the cells to become what we would call cancer cells. So there's a need of acquisition of other abnormalities. And so we're trying to put all of this together because we would like to, one, understand how this happens, I think most of us think right now MGOS is, is an accident in nature. I mean, I'm, I myself, I'll go out and say that I think it's quite likely that MGOS starts very early in life, perhaps even as early as early adult years, maybe even in childhood. And it almost takes a lifetime for, for those cells to very, very slowly grow to the point that in some cases um, they give rise to myeloma. So, so you know, we, we again want to try to put a layer of, 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 of the genetics on that can we predict better who's going to progress? And again, a lot of this work has been done uh, uh, trying to understand what clinical biomarkers might predict. Um, I have a particular interest in genetics as predictors, and I think that's um, something that we have some good signal that it, it might help, although one needs very, very large studies to, to make those final determinations. And I am currently working in, in um, other uh, biomarkers that might predict progression from MGOS. So specifically, we're looking at the number of 
of biomarkers to see if we can predict ongoing or, or impending bone destruction. So that's kind of an, a broad view of what we're doing in the area of MGOS and presymptomatic myeloma. Okay, that's wonderful. So I know when I know there's some new tests, and you're a cytogenetics expert and a genomics expert, so maybe we can spend a little time talking about the tests. In our last interview, we discussed it, um, it briefly, but I think it'd be really helpful to talk about each of the categories of tests, like the FISH test and the cytogenetics test and maybe the gene expression profile, and sure. get into a little more detail about which test tells us what information. Well, um, you know, it's been now since the mid-1980s when the first observations were made about cytogenetics. And for those in the audience that the study directly of the chromosomes, which requires that you put the cells in a culture media, the cells divide, and we can put substances that will arrest that division. So you can actually look at the chromosomes just as they are depicted in textbooks. And, and that proved to be a very useful um, uh, technique for the study of, of um, uh, patients uh, with, with myeloma so that one could establish prognosis, could link that to outcomes. But unfortunately, that's a test that doesn't work for most patients because in most cases you don't get the information. So we moved on to the FISH test, which uh, you know has been used over the last uh, 15 years, and we can establish actually uh, uh, with with uh, with better uh, ability to predict uh, uh, you know what's going to happen. We can establish prognosis, and we did it with clinical variables alone. So we've been using that to determine the myeloma category, whether it's high risk, it's not high risk, et cetera. And then um, that has, uh, again, been done routinely in the clinic. For those in the audience who are not familiar with this, FISH is a way where we actually can uh, put some probes against the myeloma cells, and we look at them under the microscope. And uh, looking at them in the microscope, uh, we can count the number of chromosomes, we can look for translocations and the like. It's a very, very practical tool that, that uh, you know, has been used in the clinic. Now, more recently, there is um, uh, the thought of using gene expression profiling, and um, without a doubt, a lot of this pioneering work has been done by the University of Arkansas, which uh, have applied this technology uh, to myeloma samples, and they can, even better than FISH, predict outcome for patients. Uh, there are some technicalities on why, you know, one test may be preferred over the other in some circumstances. But uh, more and more, I think uh, patients will see this type of approach as, as we, you know, study their bone marrow and try to establish prognosis. And then hopefully in the, in the near future, help us in therapy selection. Uh, we're, you're going to see more in the realm of um, sort of uh, next generation sequencing, uh, high throughput sequencing where, where we might be able to associate mutations with specific therapy. Um, some of uh, uh, the members of the audience may be familiar with some of the work with Keith, uh, that Keith Stewart is doing where there's this gene that's called Cerebron that appears to be very important for response to the drugs we call IMIDs, the lenalidomide and thalidomide, and, you know, that still is being developed. But it's quite likely that tests like that will allow us to say, well, this is a go or no go for this drug. And if it's no, then what might be the other options for the treatment of patients? Wow. So, so that's what you know how we're trying to bring genetics into the clinic. I think uh, people are are uh, now accustomed to use this as a routine of care. And, uh, and uh, for those in the audience, I, I guess you'll see more and more of this. Okay. Well, one question about that because I I at a patient conference I asked the group, which was a, probably 200 people. 
Mm -hmm. uh, if they had had the gene expression profile test done, and only about 10% of them have. So if our target ultimately is to treat myeloma gene at a gene-specific level or a cytogenetic-specific level, I think we all need to be getting this test. Don't is that a correct? Well, function? you know, it, it, one could clearly make the argument for that. Although primarily it's being used right now for prognosis, it's not being used quite yet uh, universally for therapy selection. That's the gene expression profiling. Right. So, so um, uh, you know, we, we we do think it's a very important test. It's one that that helps you uh, provide a little bit more precision. I mean, the reality is that there's not going to be a test that is absolutely perfect for um, uh, prognosis determination. So it gives us an approximation of what we may be dealing with, but it doesn't necessarily give you the full answer. So um, to some degree, you get an approximation, of a very good one, when you do the FISH test alone. And, and you can improve a little bit on that with the use of the gene expression. Uh, but for all practical purposes, I think one or the other is sufficient for, for uh, patient management at this okay. present time. Well, and that's what it sounds like. We've had this conversation sort of with a few other doctors as well, and that's kind of the consensus. But when I see it going, where I see it going in the future is more specific. And even though it sounds like it, it's not possible today to treat based on these profiles, I think unless we have these profiles that we can't ever get to that point. So right. as an ex and as an ex expert, what is your what do you think? Should we be encouraging patients to seek this test out? You know, I I think patients should be encouraged to have this this testing. Um, certainly, if, uh, you know, they should discuss this with their physicians. Uh, I would say at the very least, fish. Uh, in our center, we don't really use cytogenetics anymore, but you know, fish would be necessary. And uh, if they can, and and uh, that's part of the. The, the workflow in the physician's office they're seeing, I would definitely have them go for, for gene expression profiling. Uh, but as I mentioned, right now we're still mostly using it for prognostic. I think we need to get to the point that it's predictive. And what I mean by that, let me say, you know, you, you, you might say, um, if you're going to look at the street, you know, race for cars, you might say, well, prognostic might be, I'm going to say something bizarre. Maybe you're going to bet on German cars more than Japanese cars if you're looking for performance. So you, you're making an estimate of what you think the aggressiveness of the disease would be. That's prognosis. Predictive would be if you have the same cars, you know, some cars will run on diesel and some cars will run on gas, and you won't change that. So there's many reasons why a German car might lose on the race, so that's the prognosis variability. But you know a car that is diesel can only take diesel. So we want to get to the point that genetic markers allow us to make those type of determinations where we say, you know, we shouldn't even waste time with this treatment. We need to go to the next one or we need to go to a combination. Will we ever get to that point? I, I think we're going to get close. I don't know if it will ever be perfect, but we certainly can do better than what we're doing right now. Well, and I see a lot of um, new drugs that are these cell inhibitor drugs like the HDAC inhibitors and the kinase inhibitors. Are those... Are we able to look at studies for those types and ultimately maybe we can get to this point where we have studies that are for a particular subtype of myeloma patients that are studying an HDAC inhibitor? Because I don't think that's sure. possible today, but but could they be either could they be specific to a subtype of patients? No, I, I, I agree, and I think uh, what we're gonna, we might even see is that in the future there might be studies that target 
a specific genetic lesion irrespective of the tumor. So you might say, well, you know, this mutation is rare in myeloma. Maybe, let's say, it's present in 5% of cases. But if it's also present in bladder cancer and it's present in lung cancer, you might see a clinical trial where that drug is used for any patient who has that mutation irrespective of their tumor type. So we're, we're, we're sort of thinking more and more along the lines of what are the molecular uh, defects and therefore the molecular targets more than necessarily the anatom anatomic location of a specific cancer. So uh, that would be one of the solutions. You might see some trials that may target just a subset of myeloma patients because it's very specific to myeloma, and uh, patients will have to fulfill some criteria for a biomarker or something else that makes them um, uh, be in that category. Mm, okay. Now, I was re doing some reading about some of your research about IGH translocations. Can you explain what those are first? and then sure. what you have found? Well, you know, one of the uh, um, things that we have found in the cells of myeloma and also in the cells of other patients with lymphoma is that they can have abnormalities that involve uh, the site where actually we produce our immunoglobulins. So this, this site we also call the IGH and stands for the heavy chain of the immunoglobulin. And it, it turns out during the normal development of, of uh, B cells, uh, that is a genetic the genetic part of our of our body that has to undergo rearrangements, and that's just a word we used to say that there's little pieces that are cut out, that are excised, you know, there's sort of normal physiologic mutations, and that is a gene that gets rearranged just so we can produce the perfect immunoglobulins that help us fight off um, infections from bacteria and viruses. So if you look at you know a perfectly healthy uh, baby, that baby is actually undergoing mutations in its B cells just so it can generate the necessary antibodies to form immunity. Now, uh, as you can imagine, if you're, if you're dealing with, you know, chopping of DNA bits and, and, and so forth, uh, it's sort of a risky proposition because if something goes wrong, then, then that could actually lead to a, to a cancer. Well, it turns out the, the, the system is very, very unforgiving. Any mistake is immediately um, uh, sort of detected and those cells die. So, so our, our, our bodies in general are well prepared for, for dealing with, with those typos. But every now and then, one of those typos does not get recognized and then just stays there. Now, normally what happens with, with the translocations, and that's what we have worked, um, you, you know, you have the strand of DNA, and that's where you have your genes. The little cut is introduced, and when you have that cut, you have those free ends that normally should be together, they can actually go and exchange partners, so it's sort of a inter, you know, interchange of, of segments of chromosomes, and that's what we call a translocation. It's kind of like a partner exchange between two different chromosomes, mm -hmm. and that, we think, uh, leads to about half of all myeloma cases. Uh, cases. Um, in fact, those translocations are seen in patients with MGUS as well, too, and about half of patients with MGUS have those translocations. I think from what we know, they're, they're found their lesions, so that's probably one of the very first hits that occurs in B cells that ultimately uh, become myeloma cells. Uh, but we know we have patients, again, with MGOS, who may have these translocations for decades and don't have progression. So as I mentioned previously, they're, they're, they appear to be necessarily necessary, but perhaps not sufficient for imprinting the full cancer behavior to those cells. So there's some other trigger. Um, so, you know, there must be another trigger. We think they, you know, they collaborate with other genetic abnormalities that are subsequently acquired on those cells. 
And it turns out, actually, that the different translocations imprint a different uh, variety of clinical behavior to the myeloma. So, for instance, you know, the two translocations, one between chromosomes 4 and 14, and the other one between chromosomes 14 and 16, so we call them the T414 or the T1416, are associated with a more aggressive form of myeloma, whereas the translocation 1114 in general is associated with a more favorable version of the disease. So, so that's how we're, we're, you know, we're studying translocations. Obviously, they're ideal targets if, if one had a way to shut them down. Uh, but it turns out they're very powerful genetic changes. So there's not as of yet a good system where you can, you know, quote unquote, just just uh, shut down the production of the genes associated with translocations in the in the hopes of treating a tumor. Although people have tried. Or put them back where they belong, basically. Oh, I think that would be too complex. <laughs> it would be very, very hard. I, I, I don't know that that it would be possible because every single cell has a translocation. So so you'd, you'd almost have to just, just make sure you could give a drug that targets the effects of the translocation. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that's the heavy part of the chain, the light. The, that's the heavy part sure. of the chain. And then there's a light right. part of the chain. And, and from what I understand... The IgG kappa or IgG lambda or those types are the light part of the chain, and they don't have necessarily a prognostic effect, or do they? Do they? Well, the the translocations there are are uncommon. Uh, now, for the audience, I'm going to make a distinction. There's a difference between a translocation, so we're talking about that in the kappa and the lambda. Uh, but but then we have uh, the same terminology applied to the proteins we measure, so that you have the kappa and lambda proteins and the free light chain. Is you know it's probably familiar to most people. Uh, those they don't have a very strong prognostic significance. However, if if you were to 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 say anything about them, is that the lambda ones tend to have a slightly higher aggression, uh, a slightly higher association with the, the, the high risk version of myeloma. Although we don't really use that as a prognostic marker in the clinic. Okay, that's my understanding. And the the heavy chain part is that a new test? Uh, you know, the, there's uh, we've always measured the heavy chain through the uh, serum protein electrophoresis, the immunoglobulins. Uh, the, 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 we can now measure over the last several years, as you know, the free light chain, which is the unbound fraction of, of, of the, the light chains that are supposed to be associated with heavy chain. So that's proven to be, an, I'm going to say, incredibly useful test, uh, something that I can't imagine how our practice would be now without it because it's a, it's a very reliable and, and sensitive form of detecting monoclonal proteins. Uh, there's a proposal now for a new test that is sort of like the free light chain, but it measures at the same time the heavy chain, and uh, this is still undergoing uh, clinical trial testing, but it also looks quite promising. Mm, okay. And I know it seems very complicated that you really need an expert in your corner to be able to do all, perform all the tests and then analyze all the results. This, beyond choosing a specialist, which I highly advocate, what else could um, we do to help patients better understand their lab results? Well, you know, it is it is it is complicated. I mean, first of all, the fact that there's people listening to this program is is already a reflection of their interest. Uh, we work with various grassroots organizations, the foundations, the leukemia lymphoma, MMRF, IMF, etc., to disseminate some of this information. Uh, but there is no question. It's a very, very complex process. And um, 
ultimately, I think in time, um, and I'll, I'll speak for my patients, I think we spend quite a bit of time explaining the testing so, so that they become familiar with what we're looking for. Um, and and um, I, I think one, one just needs to really focus on um, education. Now, I, one of the things we, we have learned is that, um, obviously, as, as you said, we advocate and, you know, could be construed as self-serving, but we advocate that people visit with a myeloma specialist at least at some point so they can help them plan out the long term. But as they, as they work with the community doctors, uh, there are two things that I think are important for patients to know. First of all, the risk stratification. I think uh, we talked previously, you can do that through fish and, and, and gene expression, but I think it is important for uh, patients to have that discussion with their with their physicians, and um, it, it sort of gives you a different hue of what you plan, how you plan for treatment, uh, what to do after transplant, if transplant is on, etc. And for them, I would just have them instead of think about all the genes and the different tests, I would say just remember if the fish shows either a 414 or a minus 17, it's high risk, and everything else I would call not high risk. It's a very pragmatic and simple approach just to make that determination, and, and um, I think uh, most oncologists in the community should be able to kind of at least recognize the importance of the, of the two categories. The second one, which creates a lot of confusion, is the, the free light chain, which you already alluded to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell my patients, and, and I know there's, a, there's more technicalities, but I'm going to make it very simple. Once you know which one of the two free light chains is the abnormal, so is the kappa or the lambda, you don't ever, again, have to look at the ratio. You just focus on the total amount of that free light chain. So, and that's never going to change. You know, if a myeloma is, is, is IgG lambda, then that myeloma is lambda, and then we could almost, almost, and again, I, 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 I'm going to leave those out, the technicalities, forget about the kappa. And I would tell my patients, forget about the ratio, forget about the kappa. We're just going to be measuring the lambda, and that makes their life simpler because then we can just measure how the lambda goes down with therapy. We want it to stay down. If it came up, then we would be concerned about disease activity and so forth. But those are two things where, where I think patients can help the providers because admittedly, again, you know, for, for a community doctor where myeloma could be, uh, you know, 3% of their practice, 5% of their practice, they don't necessarily know all the nuances of, of the management of this. Yeah, well, I agree, and I, I really advocate having a specialist. Even if you need to get your treatment somewhere else and you can't access one on a, you know, on a daily basis or a monthly basis or, or whatnot, I still think it's important. So in one of our other interviews, we were talking to one of the specialists, and they were saying that there is, right now, at least in flow cytometry, there, there was a 100 times the variance in the level of sensitivity of testing. So as a patient that might be in any spot in the United States or in the world, um, I guess how does it, how do we know as a patient or how can we know, what questions can we ask to make sure that our, our tests are being run with the sensitivity level that we need? Sure. Well, I, I think uh, it's, it's important to actually inquire about this. Um, we, you know, so, for instance, let me use an example. If you do, if you do the, the gene expression, you must insist that it's a good aspirate and that the results are reliable, and that's in, I mean, the company does very high-quality work, but they do rely on the quality of the samples that are submitted for testing. If, if a person is to have fish, uh, the, the, the patient and their families, and I know some of this is going to be archived, but they have to look for fish that is done in either uh, what we call selected cells, so they have to enrich for the myeloma cells, 
or they have to use a secondary marker, something we call the CIG. In the absence of those, the, the test becomes highly unreliable. You know, when it comes down to flow cytometry, if it is to be done, which it doesn't necessarily have to be done in every patient, but if it is to be done, it has to be done with a laboratory that has the competency to do this. I venture out to say most of what's available right now for commercial flow cytometry just doesn't quite cut it for what we need for a minimal residual disease. Uh, it's, you know, it's become complicated. So I probably would insist on the first two, and if they're going to do flow cytometry, I would say, you know, that, that probably I would, I would take that still with some reservation. And so what can we tell patients about where we can get the test or, or how do they, what questions do they need to ask their lab, I guess, not even maybe their doctor, maybe the lab? Well, you know, it is complicated because usually what happens is hospitals and physician offices will have uh, various sort of uh, systems and contracts to work with the various laboratories mm-hmm. uh, because usually this will cover a range of tests, not only the myeloma test. So they can inquire and they can, they can you know, I, I, I've not done this myself, but I would imagine if they inquire, they can get probably some detailed information regarding the test that is being done. Uh, you know, what are the outcomes? What are the, the, the probes that are being measured? Um, the, the major commercial labs now are doing this as, as um, you know, as routine, some of the tests we mentioned. Uh, but but I, I would definitely engage with the, with the doctor's uh, office just to see what the specifics for the testing are. Okay. Well, wonderful. And before we leave testing, um, I guess I want to ask how often is testing, should, should the testing be done? Because I've had a friend who actually um, came to you as a patient and thought you were wonderful, and her oh. markers changed. Sure. Well, you know, it is, it is, um, it is a very tough question. Uh, we, we, I, I have this friend, I'll use this example, who who's, he, he self-describes himself as a hypochondriac and says, you know, I'm not comfortable unless I have my daily CAT scan. Of course, mm-hmm. that's a joke, but it really reflects the difficulty that we have in measuring things. For patients who are undergoing active treatment, I would say that at least monthly treat, uh, uh, determination of the values is important. So, so we, we, we do that on a monthly basis where we gauge progress or lack of. And then the idea has been that, you know, as, as patients complete therapy and they're stable, this can be spaced out to every two to three months. Now, this is a discussion I have with patients because some patients might say, well, I'm not very comfortable, and I know some physician offices test, um, you know, every two months, sometimes every month. Uh, you can even ask the question, well, why not every two weeks? And, and it, it becomes a, a sort of a, a, a pragmatic sort of um, aspect of how you want to manage patients. Uh, there are some patients who prefer the higher frequency. I think what we run into some problems where it gets more complicated is in the pre-symptomatic stages of the disease. There are many, many patients with MGOS and smoldering myeloma that we follow. And the, uh, the, these patients, you know, are followed at somewhat regular intervals. Um, some of them could be followed once a year, some of them every three months. And, and I can't come up, as of yet, with a perfect algorithm that should tell you for this or that person it should be this frequent. I, I think because of, of experiences where we have seen someone who has an MGOS or a smoldering, and then the next thing we know we're seeing progression of the disease. Uh, for the younger patients, and, and, and I know some of the audience may laugh, but I'm thinking, well, anyone under 65 who has this, maybe we should do it every two to three months, and that's kind of where I'm moving right now with my practice. Uh, just because of, 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 of the potential of years lost. Now, again, you know, if you're, if you're 70 and you're not comfortable with every three months, you may want to discuss this with your doctor, but 
there's really not a perfect answer for this, and it becomes a bit of a practical one. Now, we do have uh, some indirect markers that will tell us about risk of progression. So, you know, if I had a patient with uh, MGUS who had a low free light chain, who had a normal creatinine, normal hemoglobin, a perfectly normal bone scan, and a low-level plasma cytosis, I'm going to use an example, 15%. I think the risk for that patient is really minimal, so I would be very comfortable with extended periods between testing. Um, although I don't have a crystal ball, and I couldn't tell that person without a doubt that if something was to happen, we will detect it before it does. Mm-hmm. And, and what about changes in genetic? Um, well, your genetics. The, the, the genetics is kind of interesting. There's, there's two aspects of genetics. One of them is the core, and the other one are the secondary changes. So the core, the core um, genetics never change. So the you know 414, 14, 16, those will never change. The secondary ones can. So a person can acquire a deletion of 17. A person can acquire a monosomy of something or you know some rearrangement. So what we say is that the the core genetics have only only need to be tested once, like the translocations. Um, sometimes we'll repeat testing. Uh, you could repeat the, the P53. You might repeat also gene expression profiling. Uh, but to some degree, that's almost like um, a self-fulfilling prophecy because if I, you know, if I'm seeing a patient and and and, and the person has been through a number of lines of therapy, and then I'm seeing that patient again in consultation, it appears their disease is, is um, 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 acting up and and has some features of aggressiveness. I am not sure to what extent that's going to get me any, uh, you know, in a better position to decide what we're going to do for treatment. Because right from that moment, I know I have to put the best next combination that's available for that person. Hmm. And to some degree, in the setting of patients who have been previously treated, the markers we use at the time of diagnosis start losing a little bit of their prognostic significance. So, so it, it gets a little bit complicated as you go down into, into subsequent um, uh, lines of therapy. And, and even to some degree, you might say that it could be it could be counterproductive. So, for instance, let's say you have a patient who has one of those high-risk markers, or at least a classic high-risk markers. Let's say the 414, and that patient is now getting seventh line of therapy. Well, we know that most patients who have a 414, unfortunately, will not get to the point that they can see seven lines of therapy. So that, in and of itself tells us that that particular patient without 414 probably has a more favorable prognosis as opposed to a more aggressive one. Hmm. Interesting. Well, thank you for spending so much time on the testing because I know that um, if if we're going to get to more personalized care, then we need to kind of find out what kind of myeloma we have, but it's clearly complicated. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> so thank you <laughs> for spending time on that. Um, would you like to go ahead and talk about your clinical trials or what you're working on now? Sure. Well, you know, um, I'm part of a of a larger team. We're all here in uh, Mayo Clinic in Arizona, but working in collaboration with the Mayo Clinic at large with our colleagues both in Rochester and uh, in Florida. And we have a, quite a range of clinical trials that are open for patients that go from the pre-symptomatic stage, you know, the MGOS and the smoldering, to to fully active uh, myeloma. So, So, you know, we have... A number of trials. I think for the frontline therapy, we have uh, been engaged on uh, multi-drug combinations, including the the Cyclone clinical trial, uh, which uh, uses carfilzomib in combination with dexamethasone, cyclophosphamide, and thalidomide, which has proven to be uh, a very good approach. You know, similar approaches uh, probably you've discussed in your program, the carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. 
uh, combination of Dr. Jakubowiak. So, you know, that's one of the interests we have. Um, uh, we have um, also looked at, at uh, multiple drug combinations in the setting of relapse and refractory as well as novel agents. So we have ongoing clinical trials with, you know, a number of drugs, uh, drugs such as oral proteasome inhibitors. Uh, we have clinical trials going on with monoclonal antibodies. Uh, specifically one which we're very keen on is the anti-CD38 antibody, which uh, has been shown in other centers to be a promising avenue for, uh, for patients with myeloma. Um, as a result of some of the research that has been uh, going on here, we have uh, inhibitor of this uh, uh, gene called CDK5. Uh, Dinaciclib is the, the drug, and it's, this was work done by my colleague, Dr. Stewart, which is also showing some, some uh, good promise. Um, we have been engaged uh, on, on the study of other drugs uh, through some research, and uh, both with animal models as well as some historic data. We've actually started to use some, some of the, uh, the novel formulations for older chemotherapy. So we have uh, uh, um, a drug that is called uh, nat-paclitaxel, which is an analog of Taxel, which is used in many other cancers with some ability to control the disease in fairly advanced patients. So we have a, you know, sort of a whole range of options uh, that are available for, for patients. Uh, one of the challenges always is that w the person, you know, one, has to meet the criteria for, for being in the clinical trial, and two, is almost always they have to actually pretty much live next to the treatment center because a lot of these trials will require some, either frequent visits or, or um, uh, usually the administration can only be done at, at the site. So I think one, one of the things we hope is that other centers and many centers will have clinical trials so that they're available closer to uh, where patients uh, live, so that's that's you know one of the things we're we're uh, continuing to work on. Um, uh, so so I would say that's sort of the spectrum of what we have right now in in, in clinical trials. We have been very fortunate. I, I think one of the things that keeps us going with clinical trials is that we have been very fortunate. For instance, in in, in working with pomalotomide, um, I think at May we had the opportunity of treating hundreds of patients before it was approved and. Uh, see firsthand that it's a drug that is able to control the disease in, in uh, many patients. So I'm, I personally had patients who had um, evidence of, of disease that was clearly refractory to lenalidomide and, and the, the rabulamide, and then they were uh, responsive to pomalidomide, so that, that was very gratifying, um, as well as, uh, in this case, through the efforts of Dr. Stewart, we were able to have access to, to carfilzomib very early on in its development, uh, Back then, the company was called Proteolix, and the first patient, as I understand, the very first patient ever to respond to carfilzomib was a patient of mine here in Arizona. So, oh, so right. you know, that, that's kind of the feel that keeps us going for, for um, uh, you know, participating in this clinical trial. Okay. Do you mind if I back up and just ask you a little more specifics about... No, um, no, no, no problem. Some, okay. So, the NAPPEC, I'm not saying this right, but the NAPPEC... Teclataxel? Is that yes, correct? Sir. Oh, okay. Correct. So correct. I, as I understand, that's used in pancreatic cancers. And can you explain how that works or what that does? Well, you know, this belongs to the to the class of drugs that are called tubulin inhibitors. So what they do is they disrupt uh, the 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 sort of the the cable systems inside cells that make them transport proteins that make them divide. So it's a major major. Uh, uh, disruptors for the cells. It's like cu cutting the hydraulic systems on a plane, pretty much. Uh, so there's there's a number of drugs that do that. This nafpaclitaxel is, is this, this taxane that is bound 
to albumin in such a way that it seems to be um, more directed towards tumor, safer. And uh, we got an interest in it for a number of reasons. Uh, many years ago, there were some publications, um, uh, including one from, from Dr. Dimopoulos in Greece, that had found that uh, uh, patients who had um, MGUS and were treated for other cancers, again, breast and lung, etc., and they, they looked at the MGOS level and they tried to say, okay, since these patients had MGOS and they were measured again, can we tell which drugs actually brought down their proteins? So they were not being treated for myeloma, treated for other cancers, but indirectly told them about the effect. And one of the drugs that came out of this was Taxol. Uh, hmm. we, we came out uh, with the idea of uh, testing this in, in a preclinical model here with my uh, other two colleagues, Drs. Persago and Kessie. And it turns out that it showed uh, promising activities in the MIRIN model. Now, their model has uh, has been quite able to predict which drugs will work and which ones will not in the clinic. So we were very gratified to see that was the case. So we opened a clinical trial here that uh, is currently ongoing. It's a clinical trial that has um, been aimed towards very advanced disease. So the majority of the patients that are that are going into this trial have seen all of the standard drugs and combinations. And even then, we have seen some responses. So uh, for us, at least, it's exciting. It's, we, we want to learn uh, how we can, one, optimize its use, whether we can use it in combination, which seems to be the, the, the winning strategy in general in myeloma, and whether we could at some point move it more uh, into an earlier phase of the disease, because uh, we have used it in cases which are, which are fairly advanced at this point. Hmm. Well, it seems like there are so many new inhibitors or cell regulation inhibitors that are in like a phase one, maybe early phase two type of clinical trial. So how does sure. how does a patient pick one that might work the best for them? It is a challenge, and and a little bit of this is subjective, or a lot of this is subjective. You know, as much as we want to bring drugs uh, that are uh, showing some promise in preclinical work. Uh, it's really not until you get to the clinical stage that you know for sure. So, if, you know, um, there was some strong clinical work, for instance, with bortezomib, but on the other hand, some of the other drugs maybe wouldn't have shown a lot of promise. So the image in general, uh, now we know how they work and we can show in the laboratory some of their effects, but it wasn't necessarily straightforward. So had you decided not to move a little mite or a little mite into the clinic because of some sort of confusing results in preclinical medicine, Maybe we wouldn't have those drugs here, so it's a it's quite a an, um, um, uh, a bit of a trial and error, and I think that's true for some of the drugs. You know, um, HDACs, for instance, HDACs probably have some of the most elegant science behind it, drugs that should work in myeloma, but we still need to do better in the clinical trials. The, the the clinical trials so far reported are not as impressive as we thought they should be. Now it doesn't mean they won't work. In fact, I think everyone thinks they they will ultimately work. But the bar is pretty high right now because we have good drugs for myeloma. So you really have to show some some clear value of, of new drugs as they're being proposed in the clinic. And and again, just in, in, in medicine and in biology in general, there's there's a lot of complexity of how one goes about planning and executing to success. Oh well, I agree. So I think the first stop is to talk to your myeloma doctor and Of course. And and then do your homework. So, uh, yes, and I, I think talking to your doctor, there's, there's, um, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, fortunately, I think there's a, there's usually some um, good communication of early signals because of our, of our 
um, uh, you know, the reports that occur at, at uh, say, the national meetings or the scientific meetings. Uh, so I'll use an example. If there is something that looks very promising, very quickly those trials expand from being a small trial into something that is much larger. Again, thinking about pomalotomide, you know, assessing in a few patients shows activity. Before we know it, uh, a large group of patients is treated. The same was true back in the day when, when lenalidomide reblamid was first approved. Uh, we had this, this just tremendous, uh, uh, you know, access program that was made so that patients could have access to the drug way before it was approved. It was still, quote, unquote, a clinical trial, but the real intent was just to be able to have uh, patients have access to the drug so they could go ahead and get treated once we knew that it was effective. Oh, and that happened with carfilzomib, too, right? It got faster. As well, too, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, that's great. Okay, can you also explain the CDK5 and what that is and how it works? CDK5, well, yes. Uh, so so my colleague, Dr. Stewart, and I don't know if he's been on the program or not, but he, he would tell you that he participated in this high-throughput program where uh, they uh, tested a very large number of genes with the, the sole intention of finding if we downregulate a gene, uh, you can do that through a technique that's called RNA interference, but if you downregulate a gene, how would that help or perhaps even not help, perhaps antagonize the effect of drugs? So he, he did what's called high-throughput uh, uh, RNA interference screens, where you can actually test thousands of genes, and then you can use standard concentrations of, of, of a drug using a myeloma cell line. And uh, through those experiments, some of the first hits that they got were related to this particular gene, the CDK5. So they hypothesized that uh, CDK5 in combination with bortezomib may be uh, a reasonable thing to test in the clinic. And, and uh, you know, there's an ongoing clinical trial. Uh, the clinical trial has shown some activity. It's very early. So right now what we're looking at is at the combination. And I think one of the things that happens when you do combinations is that, you know, you, you, you want to know that you do better than the standard alone. But I think the, the, the signals are that this is, uh, if not with this compound, with this, this molecule that inhibits the gene, perhaps with others, uh, but there's, there's sort of promising signal that's a great pathway to follow. So, so uh, you know, I'm not um, um, uh, sure, probably over the next year or so we'll have more results on that, but that seems to be a, pr- a very promising pathway. Hmm. Okay, great. And now I understand also, I want to save time for caller questions, so... Um, I apologize for rushing some of the questions, but would you like to discuss the patent that you're developing, or is that? You were. Well, we have. Did tell me. Oh, as I understood, you were developing a patent for testing. Yeah. Well, we have uh, actually. Uh, there's there's a num- there's a number of patents that. Uh, uh, through the um, uh, Mayo Clinic, we have been able to either apply or, or obtain for, for various aspects of myeloma care. I think there's, um, you know, there's from both the diagnostic and the therapeutic, you know, examples are from the, from the diagnostic one, actually Mayo holds a patent on, on the, the fish pros for the testing of myeloma. It was mm-hmm. quite an eye-opener. It's a, a, a very long and arduous process, but it's... Uh, it's part of the, the, the protection of intellectual property that the institution has. I mean, another example, one we're working on right now, it's uh, for, for things such as uh, uh, biomarkers for responsiveness to imid. And this, this helps us because one of the things we want is to, to have this uh, 
uh, be made in such a way that it actually um, uh, changes how people are diagnosed and how their disease is prognosticated. So, for instance, some of the biomarkers for IMIDS, uh, we might have the idea, but someone needs to actually go and implement. So, so we need to have, um, um, you know, a laboratory or a company go out and implement it such that they can offer it as a clinical test. Because if we just publish and we just present it as an idea, well, there's really no traction. And what really matters at the end of the day is that this becomes actually of, of use for patients. So, so those are some of the initiatives that we actually have been participating in. Okay, and when you say IMID, it's the immunomodulatory drugs like thalidomide and pomalidomide, right? Correct, and that's okay. the work of, of Cerebron. And, you know, there's, there's other groups that have worked on similar approaches. There's, there's uh, approaches for biomarkers, for instance, for, um, uh, for um, uh, the use of uh, bortezomib, uh, we actually have another initiative, and I don't know if this is this is uh, the one you referred to as well, looking at some of the, the biomarkers for bone metabolism, which, uh, you know, we're very excited about that. We're hoping to convert that also into a clinical test. Uh, but, you know, it's just an, an uphill, uh, it's a very, very long road to make uh, one of this actually become a reality. Uh, well, then there's a follow-up question, like, question, I guess. What can patients help you do to advance your research? Well, you know, when, when, I, when I see a patient, I tell them, first and foremost, our primary uh, in, interest and our primary role is to look after your well-being. So as much as we appreciate uh, your willingness and your altruism in, in participating in some of these things, uh, the first uh, uh, reason for us to decide anything should be your, 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 uh, you know, your best outcomes and your well-being. Um, a lot of patients, we ask them, for instance, would you be willing to donate the sample at the time that we collect your bone marrow so we can uh, test for this genetic, so we can test for new drugs? I would say it's, it's, it's rare the situation where, where we don't have patients who says, well, of course, you know, I'm happy to do that. Um, I, I always stress to patients, as it should be, it's not necessarily only because I want to do that, but also because the regulations uh, say we should do that that we will care for them equally well whether they participate or not in research. We'll, we'll treat them equally well. So it is just an option for them to participate in research. There are times where we might present clinical trials because of the various stages of the disease. And again, it can be a clinical trial right for frontline treatment, of which you know, we, we will tell patients, well, you, know, you can be treated in this way, you can be treated in this other way, which is in the context of a clinical trial. So we'll go through the details. I think just, just having an openness and, and, and building on the rapport and the relationship that no doubt we always establish uh, as uh, both a, a patient and a physician, uh, that's what ultimately uh, drives our, our research. I mean, the research has, has endurance. The, the, the research results have longevity. Sometimes we treat the patients the same way, but we just collect the data in a clinical trial so that in the future, five and ten years later, we can say this is what we know and this is objective data for this. So just your willingness to even ask this question is what makes a difference and allows the agenda to move forward. Hmm. Well, great. Well, I want to open it up for caller questions, um, if that's all right with you. So sure, if you of if you have a question, you can call three four seven six three seven two six three one, and if you have a question, you can press one on your keypad. Okay, caller at phone number 204-6956. Hi, can you hear me? Yep. You can I can me. hear you well. Yes, thank you. Okay, very good. I have a question about, so for those, um, so the, for those myeloma patients who 
are able to get into remission, is there any kind of clinical trial that's being done to study how those patients can extend their remission length, maybe through diet, exercise? Is there anything that those who stay in remission for a period of time are doing that is perhaps consistent with sure. Well, that's an excellent question. I, I think when, when you look at people that go into remission, there's going to be a, a whole range. There's remission that is achieved uh, because the biology of the disease was, was favorable, so we could get into that remission. But the studies that are, have been done so far have mainly focused on the idea of maintenance after transplant. Now, most of the studies have not uh, stated that, for instance, you know, this is a clinical trial for patients in remission, which is specifically what your question is, which is actually very good. And, and I can tell you that there's very few of any studies that I know that have looked at aspects such as diet or exercise or other, you know, interventions of well-being that potentially could extend this remission. I think it's a, it's a well, worthwhile uh, uh, question and endeavor. Uh, perhaps the reason we don't have those trials is just a reflection of the uh, immaturity or the impossibility we had before in being able to talk about a group of patients being in this remission, which we now know is more common than not. So... I wouldn't be surprised if, if other trials come along asking some of these questions, and specifically, as you say, as in diet. Outside of a trial, uh, we just do either the monitoring or, or have that long discussion about maintenance uh, when the patient is in remission. And can, you, can I ask one more question? Can you still hear me? Oh, sure. I can hear you, yes. Okay. I didn't, I didn't know if I was muted. So um, how about for those patients who the disease is being controlled really well through whatever plan they're on? Does it make sense for those patients to look towards a clinical trial, or is it more the approach of, hey, things are going well for you, let's just keep on the path that we're on? Well, you know, there's sort of an old adage in medicine that says, if what you're doing is working, just keep doing it. So in general, if I have a patient who's doing very well, I'll use a specific example. If I have a person who's on maintenance and is doing very well post-transplant and it's been three years and I know that the disease is not moving, I'd be very reluctant to recommend any change and would probably wait until the time of such a change to decide on a new treatment. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Great. Thank you. Very good question. Thank you for the answer. Okay. Caller at 653-3926. Go ahead. Unmute. Hello? Uh-huh. Go ahead. Hi. This is uh, Rogelio de los Santos calling from Mexico. Hello, Rogelio. Uh-huh. What do you suggest for those who live outside of the U.S. in terms of testing, and how do they know how complete their tests are? Well, you know, I, I would suggest that um, most patients should do uh, some of the basic testing on the bone marrow through um, at least genetics and fish. Uh, I know it's not widely available, so if that would not be available, I would probably ask uh, uh, pathologists about some of the other markers, you know, people have looked at the morphology of the cells, so the cells might look more uh, um, aggressive because they're immature. They have some cell features that we would think of them as indicating aggressiveness. Uh, you know, the technical term would be like nucleoli. So, so there's a number of things that can be done uh, in addition to what's just the standard testing. And, and, and certainly I would advocate for some of this testing to become available. I think that the prices for some of those things has dropped considerably, so, so hopefully, again, as time goes by, more and more people have access to this. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Okay, one more question. Uh, All right. Hey, thanks for taking the call. Uh, my question is, 
how long are most clinical trials? If I participate, I mean, do I have to move to your area for that period of time, or can I travel back and forth? And so, do I just travel to to the trial, or is that it? Or do I have to go back and forth? And what what length of period are these trials? Sure. So, some of the clinical trials do require more intensive monitoring while uh, you're on the active phase of the treatment. And then as, as, as that treatment is completed, patients may go into what we call monitoring. And that monitoring may require, say, visits every two to three months uh, or something like that where, where a person can, can more easily go be going back and forth. And we have the whole spectrum. Some clinical trials may require a treatment once a month. So patients from farther distances can come and be treated. Some Some trials require treatments twice per week, and then it becomes very impractical for someone who's not actually physically in the same city uh, to participate. Now, what I do, and, and, and I think a lot of people do, I, I tell my patients about available clinical trials based alone on what's available, so I don't want to make a determination for them whether it's appropriate or not for them to be coming because uh, the, the levels of possibilities and motivations are quite variable. So some patient might say, well, that's interesting enough for me that I want to be coming back and forth. Maybe I, you know, I want to spend more time here. Uh, so I just, I, I tell my patients, I'm going to tell you about the options just as if you lived here, and then you can decide with me. Hmm. All right. Awesome. Okay, that's well, a great. Okay, thank you for the answer. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Fonseca, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I, I hope this was an informative and. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to report that if we did this a year from now, the, the answers and the results probably would be quite different, which is reflect the dynamism that currently exists in this field. Well, that's great. Well, we'll just have to have you on again. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, we look forward to hearing more about your discoveries, and we offer you our support, and we thank you for taking your valuable time. We wish you the best in your practice and in your research. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to see you in the future. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for our next MPatient Radio interview as we learn more about how we as patients can help accelerate a cure for multiple myeloma. 